your dreams. Hello and welcome to Mormon Stories Podcast. I'm very excited to have you with us today. Um, I'd like to thank all of you who were able to listen to the Buckley Jepson interview. We've received a lot of uh, uh, very positive and negative feedback around that episode. Um, I'm just grateful that people were able to hear Buckley's story, and I hope um, you guys enjoyed it. As always, we encourage you to please send your comments either to mormonstories at gmail.com, or even better, please feel free to join us uh, up on our blog at www.mormonstories.org. Um, today we have a very special guest with us. Um, his name is Darren Smith. Darren, welcome and, and thank you for joining us on Mormon Stories. Are you there, Darren? Hello? Are you there? Yeah. Uh, Darren, thank you for coming on Mormon Stories. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, there's a little, there's a little, a little bit of a gap in here. I couldn't hear you. Oh. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. And um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Darren Smith, um, uh, well, there's a lot to say about Darren. I mean, if I went through his resume, uh, there's a lot of cool things you'd see. Darren um, has, been a, has been a teacher at BYU, at UVSC, at University of Utah. He has a master's degree, and he's working on his Ph.D. in education. Um, great guy, and um, probably most notable, um, if you've been following the press at all, um, and I'll just go ahead and read from uh, an article in the Salt Lake Tribune, which basically says that Smith worked until recently as an adjunct professor at LDS church-owned Brigham Young University and as a diversity counselor. Last month, his contract was not renewed, he says, and he was told it was because of his constant raising of this issue, meaning uh, the blacks and the priesthood and the church issue, with the media and in public forums. Um, he's also the co-editor of an anthology called Black and Mormon. Um, and Darren, again, it's just great to have you on to talk a little bit about your story. Thank you. I'm glad to be glad to be able to participate in this. Uh, in this, I hope people uh, hope people are uh, uh, understanding and uh, and and uh, yeah. I hope I went over some allies in the process. <laughs> great. Well, um, you know, there's probably three three topics we can cover today. One is just your history um, as it relates to your life in the church. The second is, um, you know, the blacks and the priesthood and that whole history uh, of the church itself. And then finally talk about um, your being let go from BYU. But if it's okay, let's go ahead and start um, with your story. Um, you know, if, if you don't mind, let's start, you know, we always, you know, when we talk to people who were raised LDS, you know, many of them are sixth generation, we talk about their heritage. Don't even hesitate to, to start back and tell us what you know about your heritage as far back as you might know about it, kind of as an analog to what people do with their pioneer ancestry. But then go ahead and tell us about, you know, your early years and how you came to be a member of the church. Well, um, uh, you know, I'm actually a descendant of slaves, so I have no idea where my ancestors came from. Uh, like most blacks in America, in, the, in, the North, in North America, who uh, you know, who were born and raised here, they're, most of their ancestors, I would imagine, came from Africa, western coast of Africa, and settled uh, in the South. Most the majority in the South, and unless those were fortunate enough to move into um, the North. Um, so that's about as far as I know, and I know that most of my peoples came and uh, settled around the Nashville, Tennessee area. And so that's why I spent most of my life um, growing up is in the Nashville area. And that's where I came in contact with the church. I mean, it came at a time, John, when I was actually looking for um, a, different, a different narrative, a different spiritual narrative. Um, I had been a member of the Baptist faith for, you know, for as long as I can remember. But I didn't really go very often, but I know that my family would often participate and I remember my grandmother had no saying. She used to say, you know, Baptist born, you know, Baptist, uh, you know, uh, Baptist bred. When I die, Baptist buried. She was a big advocate of the church, the the Baptist faith, and uh, and she was true to her word. When she died, she was actually uh, died died in the faith and was buried, and uh, you know, with the whole um, you know Baptist spectacle. So um, that's all I knew, and this is I anticipated that would be all I would know. But I was always curious about other faiths and uh, didn't really find that my faith community, the Baptist Church, really gave me answers to 
religious questions that I needed to know at the time. I was 15 when I began to investigate and at least contemplate the idea of leaving the Baptist faith and looking at other faith communities. And just so happened that I was working during uh, the Christmas season, Christmas season of 19, I think it was 1985, and I, was, I met a gentleman named John Mitchell who uh, was actually African American. That was that's the most ir- ironic thing. This guy was actually black who introduced me to the church in uh, in 1985, and he was telling me about things that sound extraordinarily intriguing. Um, ideas about um, prophets, living prophets, and and, uh, and ancient scriptures, ancient texts that uh, contain the writings of Jesus Christ in it, uh, that was uh, pretty much preserved for the Western Hemisphere, and that he asked me that I, you know, to, to take us, uh, at least to, to consider looking at looking at it, and and if I knew these things, would it, you know, what would it do for me if I known that. You know, Christ visited his people here in the Western Hemisphere. Um, that part of it was very interesting to me because I, like I, I'd read, um, I'd come across some texts that had talked about, you know, the Native American community in North America and in and, and, uh, Northern Mexico and how they had encountered um, Jesus Christ. They called him different names, Quetzalcoatl, Kukuka, and so on. But, but they had this belief that uh, they called it a great spirit came and visited them and, uh, and, and taught them um, the gospel. And so this gentleman told me about this, and, and not in that kind of detail, but, but enough to, uh, to, again, to pique my interest. And, um, and uh, that Christmas season ended, and I went on back to my business of being a high school student. Now, he didn't tell me the name of the church. I didn't, never did know what the name of the church was. He didn't tell me even the name of the book that he was referring to, other than just he had a book, because it was just such a very short encounter, uh, maybe over the course of a week, maybe. And we only talked about it maybe a couple of times. But, but shortly thereafter, after the Christmas season had passed, um, I was taking a shower, and I heard a knock on the door. And it was a, it was a faint knock because the sh- shower was loud and the music in my room was blaring. And I was the only one home. My, my mother and my sister were out. And uh, I hopped out of the shower and ran to the door and peeped out the peephole, and there were two men there, two, um, two white men with red ears and, uh, and a scarf and gloves, and they said, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we have a, a message to share. Well, you know, the same spiel that most missionaries give when they go out and serve. And so I thought to myself, man, I do not want to open this door. I'm in the, sh- in the middle of a shower. And I don't know these people. They might be Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm not interested. Not that I have any, anything against Jehovah's Witnesses, but that's typically who proselytizes and knocks on doors is Jehovah's Witnesses. And so the way that, the way the one guy said, you know, we only have a short message. And we only take a little, a little bit of your time. You know, um, you know, can we come in? And it's cold, and it was cold in January, so I let him in. And then they begin to tell me the same story that John did about mm-hmm. living prophets ancient texts, uh, you know, how would I feel about God, you know, having, you know, having other sheep, if you, that's the metaphor that we typically use in the church, um, that he brought his word to. And I remember asking them, I said, did John Mitchell send you guys over here? Mm. And they said, we don't know John Mitchell. Mm. They said, he must be in the other ward. So, and I, I, I was thought they were referring to a, pr- a prison. A prison ward. Or, uh, yeah, a jailhouse or something, but... But uh, I, I later found out that wards, you know, were, you know, are what uh, members of the LDS Church typically refer to as congregations. But um, they were very, when it, they looked at each other and they smiled. So I was, in, in, later, in later years, I realized that smile meant something like, well, this guy's golden, right? This guy's right. golden contact. Sent by the Lord. And right? so, I mean, you know, and so that's typically when I showed my mission, I had the same, you know, the same kind of expressions when people were interested in, and uh, you know, in hearing in hearing what we had to say, we're honestly interested in it. So we um, we had a real nice conversation about the church, and they began to tell me about living prophets. That's that's the second big topic that we talked about. And I, in my naivete, assumed that you know these men look like you know Moses, the kind of representation of Moses, with long coat cloaks on and long beards and so on. And all these men dress dressed like modern folks dress, and so. Um, eventually, um, you know, the, the message was compelling enough, and I found myself in the waters of baptism, January twenty second, nineteen eighty one, and that's and that, you know, began. Um, 
interestingly enough, when I joined the church in 81, it was just, what, three years after the priesthood ban was lifted? Right. Um, and they didn't tell me that. They didn't tell me about the priesthood ban and the whole issue about black until after I had joined. Okay, so real, real quick. Oh, go, go sorry. Just real I'll, quick. I'll so your your conversion, would you describe it as intellectual, spiritual? Was there a strong no, social? Was, was there a strong think, social component to it? Yeah, I think so. I think I, I would say I wouldn't say it was a spiritual conversion by any means. I mean, there were probably moments where I felt the Holy Ghost. You know, in the way that we, in the way in which we as Mormons describe that, that experience as a burning in the bosom and so on. I mean, I'm sure I felt that way at times. Um, when we were during the course of the, the, the discussions that we had, but I was—I would say that as I analyze it and look back at the situation, it was probably more social than it was anything. I, th- I think the spiritual conversion came much later. So, me. so did you? So you started attending a ward? Well, yeah. I mean, they invited me to come to church. Was they, it a was it a white to... was it a white ward? Was it a ethnically yeah, yeah, it diverse ward? I mean, the thing that struck me the most when I went the first time I went to the LDS church service was I saw a hell of a lot of kids in the hallways, a lot of kids. That struck me. It's like, wow, these people love to have kids. What, what is it about these kids? That's the first thing. Secondly, a lot of white folks right. everywhere. I didn't see any people of color. So I was automatically intimidated. So was your buddy John? Said, Did you ever run into your buddy John? No, 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 because he was in the other ward. Oh, okay. And so, and I was actually in the third, I was, you know, I was, my boundaries, our ward boundaries was in the other ward, third ward, national third ward boundaries. And so that's where I went, actually. So John was nowhere to be found. But when I mentioned John, and I mentioned that John, John's name, and began to speak about John, then they later contacted him, and then he, and then he got involved in this process too, of, of bringing me the, bringing me the word. And, so, do, uh, and do you remember when you were, you know, first starting to show up? Do you remember people being shocked? Do you remember them being turned off? Do you remember them being super excited to have you there? I mean, this is the South, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is, you know, typically the South gets a bad rap, you know, for for, for its its, nefarious history. But I can honestly say that when I went to the church, the the LDS service in Nashville, I felt very, very welcomed and very, very accepted. People there were very, very open to me. And made me feel like a part of the family. I mean, in, in all honesty, that's probably why I stayed. Right. I mean, that's probably why you know, for the first five or you know, the first ten years or so, I wouldn't say that long. Probably the first five years, you know, I had a lot of really good friends, and you know, and they were my anchor. And what you know, and, and were, did did you ever, you know, as you were contemplating joining, did it ever cross your mind? You know, I'm not going to go to church with just all white people. I mean, there's no people yeah. of color here. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. There was certainly some doubt, you know, and I did feel. And, and you know, what's interesting is that, you know, there are times when I'm in the congregation as I look back at this experience now, and I say, man, I feel uncomfortable here, because all these white people, you know, I feel uncomfortable, you know. And then, you know, for, you know, fast forward twenty, twenty six years later, and there are times I still feel uncomfortable, right, being around all white people. But was there a dynamic? I, I you know, I've been in a few situations in wards where. You know, people are excited to have something different and new and unique, and it's almost like people are extra interested, you know, in someone who's black than they might be just, you know, an average, you know, white person. Did you ever get the sense that maybe there was potentially an extra level of interest? Well, you know, and I would, I would, I would, if if, if we're going to use, you know, talk about it in those terms, I would, I would say that there was certainly uh, a high degree of exoticism in the ward. I mean, the fact of the matter is I was African-American. People saw me as African-American, and they took it upon themselves to probably be a little bit, a little bit more hyper-polite than they normally would be to somebody who was white, I would argue, that would come into the, right. come into the, you know, into the services. Yeah, there was a, a whole lot of exceptionalism going on and exoticism. Right. You know, this black guy's here. You know, he's exotic. The whole you know, metaphor, myth over the exotic other, that certainly was part of, the, part of the experience. But I was too immature at that time to understand that and to really be able to make sense of it and and looking back again looking back at it um i'm actually again i think that that i think that the way in which the people fellowshiped me there was adequate enough to keep me there to keep me active and keep me interested let me give you an example of what i mean by that john um when i had after i joined and and hadn't gotten into the rhythm and flow of going to church and participating in and priesthood and so on i remember i got i started going inactive i just didn't go it was probably a string of Probably three or four weeks, three or four Sundays, I didn't. I just didn't go at all. I just decided not to go anymore for some reason. I don't know why. But I remember that one on that fourth Sunday. I never will forget this. 
I was upstairs getting my sleep on, and uh, my mother came upstairs and said, you know, said Bubba, that's my nickname. Everybody, all my all my homies in the South call me Bubba, those that know me. Uh, I said, Bubba, there's some people that from your church at the door. I said, people from my church at the door? It's a Sunday. They should be in church. <laughs> so I throw my clothes on, go downstairs, and guess who it was? It was the bishop and the Iranian priesthood. They oh, all yeah. came, to my, came to the house. I mean, that's beautiful. It's, it sends chills, I mean, it, chills down my spine. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, they all came to the house. Hmm. And the bishop said, Darren, you know, we just we haven't seen you in a while. We want to know, you know, make sure you're okay and you know, we want you. So I put my clo- hurry up, put my clothes on, mm. uh, and went on with them. That's a, that's a cool story. And I, and I never, I never missed again <laughs> after <Right>. that. <laughs> I mean, it was the embarrassment of it all, of having them come and call me out. But then it also, again, in retrospect, it was the the sense that they they cared. They yeah. really cared yeah. about me. I mean, the Bishop Love was probably the most influential bishop I had. I mean, I, he was the longest guy. I mean, he was the bishop for almost 10 years when I first converted. Right. It was, uh, there was a gentleman before him, but I didn't know him as well as I knew Bishop Love. But bishop Love really went the extra mile. And he was actually from Louisiana, believe it or not, but just a wonderful, wonderful man. And, uh, and I would never will forget that, actually. So that's, so that's remarkable. I mean, let's give credit. Those members were maybe even a little bit ahead of their time in, in being very Absolutely. open and warming and gracious to you. Absolutely, I, I would, I would, I would say that my experience in Nashville, in the Nashville ward, was exceptional. I really would say that. I mean, I said that the people there just had a just a genuine, and you know, it's, and it's so funny too, because like I mentioned to you before, John. Right now, I'm in Alabama. I'm here on a on a military assignment, but um, and you can still see that here, even in the south in Alabama, you've got that southern hospitality. People just just they they speak to you in the south. You know where you stand with most people because they're going to tell you. Right. Whereas in Utah, if, if I contrast the two experiences, people in Utah exhibit and display a much more happy face, um, you know, kind of an experience. In other words, they're smiling your face, but when you turn your back, you know, they're, they're you know, that w- one of them was just here. So you get that kind of, a, you know, that kind of juxtaposition mm-hmm. from the south to Utah. And so, and hopefully we'll cover that tonight a little bit on, sure. this, on this program. Okay, cool. So, so you have a, a really good formative experience in the church. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You you stayed active through high school. Mm-hmm. Um, did you serve a mission? I did. I Where, did. Where'd you go? I actually I actually received a mission call to serve in in the Lansing, Michigan mission. Now I was just in, in Lansing Lansing. last week. If you can believe yeah, that. Yeah, you mentioned to me you were going there. Yeah, I loved it, John. It was off the chain. I mean, the donuts and the cider. Uh, the people were off the chain. The church is very small there, at least when I was there. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, it was growing still. But I had a good, I really, really had a wonderful time. In fact, I tried to extend, but the mission president told me to get, get, get out of Dodge. But um, I really enjoyed my experiences there. And I, I wanted to say that, you know, throughout my high school years in Nashville, the church really was an anchor for me. It really provided me with a lot of stability. And, um, and the people that I associated with were just phenomenal. Um, and they gave me a lot of good, I mean, a lot of good positive role models in, in the young people that I associated with, but also in the parents of the young people that I associated with. And so all of those experiences that I had when I was, you know, living in that, in that community and growing up, um, I would say was very, very positive. And so it led me to go on a mission. I was reluctant to go on a mission. Um, I want to add that. I mean, this wasn't like I just said, yeah, I'm going to go on a mission. But um, I, I went to Ricks College after I graduated from high school, and um, there was a guy, uh, a young man in my ward. His name was Tim Carter, and Tim had gone to Ricks. And I, you know, you know, you know, in each ward, or each branch, or even in the stake centers, they have those little, you know, those little, uh, um, those tear-off brochures. Go to Ricks. Go to BYU. You know, those little things they sure, have. Yeah. I used to always walk by those things and see them, but I didn't know really what they were and, until Tim came back from Ricks. And I said, Tim, what is this Ricks College thing? He had told me that Ricks was a, a junior college and that it was, he had an f- excellent experience there and it was awesome and people were great. And, and I knew that my grades sucked. Right. Can I say that on the, on the podcast? Sure, sure. My grades, my grades weren't that great. And so I figured that, you know, Ricks was as good a place as any. So I didn't think I'd even get in. But um, at, that, at that time, Ricks was taking anybody. Now, what year was anybody. this? What year was this? This is in 86. 
80, no, hold on a second. This is 84, excuse me. I went to Rick's from 84 to 86, and then okay. we were on a mission okay. from 86 to 88. Okay. So, um, so Rick's, so anyway, I sent my application in, got in to Rick's. Originally, I, I was thinking I was going to play football because I played high school ball and was quite, you know, and I, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I, you know, I had skills. Right. But anyway, so I had originally wanted to go to Rick's to play football, but I got up there, and that, that high elevation was kicking my bones. Right. And so I said, nah, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, work on my, on my uh, brawn. You know, so I went to Rick's the first year, didn't, the first semester, didn't do very well the first semester. Um, you know, I was reverting back to my old, uh, you know, inept high school days when I just basically got by with my athletic ability. And so, um, um, uh, went in the military after that. I went, to, did uh, one almost eight months in the military. Went to photo school. Came home. This was in '85. Came home in '86. Came home '86 and started teaching taekwondo for my instructor. My uh, taekwondo instructor, his name is Bob Harding in Nashville. Another very influential guy uh, in my life. Just, just, uh, just really taught me a lot of important lessons about life and about you know the value of work and, and working hard and so on. And uh, then after that, we had a guy, a gentleman in our ward, who his name was Jerry Calvert. Oh, see, I remember. See, so I, re- I remember these people. These people were significant in my life, and so I remember their names. Even though I don't, I haven't seen Jerry Calvert in years, but I remember his name, mm-hmm. and I remember his the the way in which he influenced my life. But Jerry, one day after we had class, Taekwondo class, Jerry said, "Darren, have you ever thought about going on a mission? Have you ever thought about a mission?" I said, "Hmm." I don't think so, man. He says, well, why not? You'd be excellent. You teach Taekwondo. You're so good at it. You teach well. You'd be really good. I said, well, I just don't want to cut my hair. I don't want to wear no white shirt. No, you know, basically that kind of thing. Hmm. Then Jerry Calvert had to open his big mouth, and he had to say, well, why don't you pray about it? Hmm. If you ever want somebody to go on a mission, never tell them to pray about it. Hmm. It's only one answer. Hmm. So I went home, and I took Jerry up on his challenge. I went home, and I prayed about it, and I got an unbelievable witness. Hmm that a mission is what I was supposed to do. Mm. I should go on a mission. Mm. And so I did. And so in the spring of 86, I talked to my bishop, Bishop Love. And he, Bishop Love didn't think I was going on a mission. I told him. He had asked me a couple of times, you know, in his, in his nice southern accent, Baron, do you want to go on a mission? I said, uh, I don't think so, Bishop. Well, you'd be really good. I said, no, nah, no. Nah. So he was shocked when mm-hmm. I said I was going to serve a mission. Right. And so we, we rapidly got the paperwork together, and then I uh, got my call. Uh, to Michigan, and then, um, and guess who was my state president at the time? Hmm. Who was, and to this day, is still absolutely wonderful. Elder Todd D. Christofferson, huh. who was in the first quarter of seventy. He's in there now. <laughs> yeah, he's he's in the presidency right now. Oh wow! Just to, yeah, I mean, I absolutely have nothing but love, admiration, kudos for. President Christopherson. I mean, he was state president then when I was in Nashville. Hmm. So I had my interview with him, then I went. And that was where the spiritual conversion for me came. A lot of missionaries I noticed when I was out in Michigan doing my thing, a lot of them go there not really having a testimony. A lot of them go there borrowing testimony from their parents and not really knowing for sure why they're there. I can say that when I went, I was honestly committed to it. Um, and I really threw myself into studying a lot. In fact, I developed excellent study habits on my mission. Right. And it, and then that enabled enabled me to come back home, and go back to Rick's and finish up the first and redo the first semester that I did so horribly, uh, and do well. And so that led me on to different things. But here here's here's sort of what happened during this process. I think I mentioned to you earlier that um, the first time I had heard about the priesthood issue was when the missionaries, when I went, I went proselytizing with the missionaries, the ones who baptized me. I was so taken by this whole missionary thing and by these two gentlemen, these two, you know, um, you know, wonderful young men who had brought me into the church. I wanted to go out with them, go proselytizing with them, so I did. And I remember one of them telling me one night, he, was, he said, Darren, I got something to tell you that we didn't tell you before, you know, but, uh, you know, and I hope that you understand. And so he begins to tell me that there was a time that blacks could hold the priesthood and that he didn't know why. He didn't understand why other than it was there. And he did it. Then, he, then he said he had, he, he had heard that this is one explanation, and he talked about the whole fence-sitter analysis, that blacks were fence-sitters and that. And I remember after he told me that story and after he said this, I felt so betrayed. Now, now was this I before felt, you were baptized? This is after I was baptized. How many? How long after you were baptized? This is probably two months after. 
Okay. And just so our listeners, most of our listeners will know, but, you know, I think what you're referring to is, is the teaching that in the pre-existing, you know, I, I have an original edition of Mormon doctrine, probably like a 1958 right. version. And in there, right. Bruce R. McConkie basically says, in, in the heavens before we came to this earth, you know, there were valiant people and there were less valiant people. And, and the exact quote, I think, from the book, it says, um, these less valiant we call Negroes. Right. So that's the right. teaching you're yeah. referring to. Right, right. In fact, that in fact that particular um, that that particular um, idea was invoked by the blacks were fence-sitters in the persistence. That was actually invoked by uh, Joseph Fielding Smith. He was the sort of author of that particular um, idea. Um, so uh, uh, McConkie had some other dastardly comments that uh, I can quote some of those for if you want me to, but I won't get into it at this point. But but nevertheless, he told me about this, and I remember feeling very betrayed. Very betrayed. I was like, "Wow, I can't believe these people, man. These people are gonna bring me into that, bring me into their church, you know? They're gonna woo me with their nice niceties, and then and then drop some racism on me, right? You know? I mean, I just don't. I don't. I mean, I was. I felt very hurt by it. I remember that. But the flip side of the coin is that I really, really, really liked Elder. I mean, both of the elders, and I can't remember their names, right? Um, and, and, but I, I, I liked them a lot, and so that was enough for me. To stay in, and uh, also I had I was beginning to develop some some good friends some good some good friendships, and so I stayed active. In fact, one of the one of the um, friendships that I developed was with uh, a, a family, the Lifferth family, L I F F E R T H. In fact, David Lifferth, the oldest of the of the Lifferth uh, clan, was actually uh, for a brief time the mayor of Eagle Mountain. Those who live in Utah. Uh, no, Eagle Mountain's a new community. It just was sort of developed out, out west of Lehigh, and David was actually the mayor there. And so um, it was nice to see him, you know, him, you know, doing his doing his thing. He's a Republican. I have a problem with that. Other than that, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just I'm pleased to see my my my, my fellow Nashvilleians doing their thing. Sure. But 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 at any rate, so um, that that was a turnoff when I heard that. Yeah. But, 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 you know, but I was so, again, socially taken by the experiences that I've had with members of the church. I just, I just repressed it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't hear it again until after I served a mission. And I remember, I remember the exact time and the exact time. Okay, wait, wait. Let me, ju- let, me, let me just jump in and ask one question. Yes. Dur- during your mission, did you ever teach black people? Yes, I did. I, I, that's, I'm, I'm getting to that. Oh, sorry, yes. sorry. Oh, sorry. Yes, no, no, no problem. Yeah, I'm getting that because this is where this is where this issue became more of a um, more problematic for me. We were teaching in Kalamazoo. Uh, anybody know anything about Michigan? Kalamazoo is where Western Michigan is, and we came across um, two uh, African American gentlemen, and they let us into their home after we had, you know, these these were two students, and we gave them the spiel, the first lesson. About the church, and then at the end of the lesson, one of the one of the one of the guys said, "So, do you know that your church? There was a time that your church didn't allow black people to hold to to participate in it. I don't know exactly how he phrased it, but he knew that there was a time that blacks couldn't fully participate in Mormonism." Right. And I said, "Yes." He says, "Well, they your church believes that black people are less than or cursed or has some kind of a prohibition on them." You know, how do you feel about that? I mean, what do you what do you say about that? And I said, well, they they don't have that kind of prohibition or that kind of uh, belief because here I am, right now. I mean, I'm living proof that that is not the case. He says, well, he says, but I don't understand how you can belong to a church that would have, you know, up to very recently, you know, this kind of teaching, you know. And I then then he says, well, can you tell me what you know of what you know about this this black issue. And so I began to tell him, I began to recant to him, you know, one of the one of the n- numerous folklores, folklore folklorish myths about the black experience. One, of course, and you, you cited one of them earlier, the Joseph Elding Smith one, The Way to Perfection, uh, chapter sixteen, actually. and the name of the the book I think it's called The Seed of Cain after the Flood, where he talks about blacks being fence sitters. I begin to talk about that. I say that in this to these young men. I remember they would look at each other and they said, Brother, you are very, very lost. Mm. If you believe that black people are cursed and descended and descendants from Cain, you are very, very lost. And they asked us to leave. So did you did, did you kind of believe that at the time? 
you know, I didn't know. I didn't know what to believe. You know, I was just only, I was being Mr. Obedient. I was just trying to, I was just trying to give them an answer that was adequate. And, and at the time, I thought that was an adequate answer to give. Hmm. And, and they, so that, so at that moment, that's when I began to say, there's something wrong with this. There's something really wrong with this. And I cannot tell you how many missionaries I've spoken to over the years who continue, continually spew this kind of racist folklore. Right. That cont- not just missionaries, but, but um, well-meaning and not so well-meaning members of the church. Sure. Continue to, to, talk, to talk about blacks as if we were cursed or less than or inferior and continually invoke these old racist assumptions by Joseph Elding Smith and Brigham Young, and then get pissed off at someone like me when, you, when, when I say, or someone like you even, John, if you were to say, well, that's, in, that's inappropriate, these men are racist, they have problems, they were proxies of their time, and they, they look at, well, no, they're not racist, they're, they're men of God, as if, as if they're somehow immune from the ills of society. Right. And so that's been probably one of the most problematic experiences in this in this uh, endeavor that I've been engaged in is 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 uh, is being just absolutely flabbergasted at at the blind obedience that many many of our many members of the church have even even if it's even if it's racist blind obedience and failing to think for themselves and say wait a minute racism has always been a systemic and persistent structural uh, uh, anomaly in U.S. society. Right. Why right. would the church be any different? Why would our church be any different? I know we have such a high regard for our church. I understand that. I've, I've been a member long enough to know that. But I also have been a member long enough to understand that, that it's not always that way, particularly when you're looking at social issues. And I think that's the case for a lot of churches. But our church, unfortunately, persisted in this longer than most churches did. So let's... So let's after this... Oh, oh, oh sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I, I, I want to hear, hear um, you continue the story. But it, this okay. feels like a good segue to actually spend, you know, 10 minutes or so sure. talking about, um, you know, starting with Joseph Smith, let's just do a 10-minute survey on the history of Mormons and, and, and blacks or African-Americans. And I, and I, I lose track. Is it, is it insensitive to say black now or is, is African? Some, people, no, are, think, some I, people are offended by African-Americans. So I, you I know do. what? When in doubt, when in doubt, ask. Yeah. When in doubt, ask. So what do you, for what me, do you, I don't care. Black, African-American, okay. that's fine. Okay. So why don't we just, you know, tr- you know, there are a lot of things that are really interesting about Joseph Smith and how he viewed blacks. So why don't you just talk us through some high-level history on blacks in the church? Well, a lot of this has to do with uh, innuendo, folklore, rumor, uh, uh, myth. Uh, a lot of people like to say, well, it was church policy, that blacks couldn't hold the priesthood. There's nowhere anywhere where this has ever been inscribed, that blacks couldn't hold the priesthood. A lot of it, a lot of it stems from Brigham Young in 1854. 1854. Oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. I, let's back up. Um, you know, the, the two things, the, the couple things that I know, and maybe you can talk about this, you know, one... Is is that Joseph Smith um, did ordain black people to the priesthood? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, he he Joseph Smith ordained Elijah. Well, it wasn't him. It was uh, he, he was it was his father who ordained Joseph uh, it ordained Elijah Abel to the priesthood in the eighteen hundreds. I can't remember the date eighteen forty or something. And there may have been at least one or two other blacks that were uh, at least, ordained. Uh, well, there's one uh, one guy named uh, Walker Lewis. We know mm-hmm. that a gentleman named Walker Lewis received the priesthood, but he received it under the hands of William Smith, who was Joseph Smith's brother. Right. And, and many people may not know this, but William Smith actually left the church and went over with Emma and started the reorganized church. And so they, 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 they basically debunked that, that uh, priesthood authority and priesthood line because of the, the schism that happened in the church after the prophet was assassinated. And it's also worth mentioning that part of the reason why we suffered so much persecution in Missouri was because of Joseph Smith's position on on blacks and slavery. Is that right? right? That's right. And that's a lot of a lot of that history, John. Unfortunately, is not well understood by members of the church. And, and I want to say this because I, I think I may have a little bit of an audience for this right now. That African Americans, blacks, have always been central to Mormonism since its earliest days, hmm. particularly when blacks were expelled from Jackson County, Missouri. The whole expulsion from Jackson County, Missouri had to do with 
a, man, uh, a, uh, an, an, a newspaper article written by W.W. W. Phelps in the Times and Seasons in 1844 when Phelps uh, was so excited about all these Mormons um, congregating in, in Jackson County, Missouri, that he wrote this article entitled Free People of Color, where he talked about how uh, the church would grow and that the Laplander would join and that the Hottentot would join and that all these different uh, nationalities and races and so on would all come into Jackson County, Missouri. Well, that, that, that uh, newspaper article obviously got into the wrong hands. It got into the hands of the Missourians. And as you know, Missouri at that time was a slaveholding state. So the last thing that Missourians wanted to hear was the Mormons trying to incite black folks uh, to come into a, uh, into a slave state with, with, the ex, with the understanding that an insurrection might, uh, might uh, ensue. Right. And so uh, as a result of that, the Mormons were expelled from Jackson County, Missouri. And nobody knows that. A lot of people don't even know that story. Uh, Leonard Arrington, in his book, uh, his book about Mormons, has written extensively about that. My, my uh, good, very, very good friend and colleague, uh, Newell Bringhurst has written about it. Uh, Armin Moss has written about it, um, and and uh, several other noted LDS scholars have written about this particular history. And, and it might it might understood. be fair, it might be fair to say, and I think I I've read Arrington. I believe it's Mormon experience that I read. That, but basically, mm-hmm. there there were there were other religious and economic and social issues as well. But definitely, mm-hmm. definitely the the black issue and the slavery issue were central. Um, well, absolutely. I mean, and I, and I, I don't want to say it as if that's the only issue, right. but that was one of the main ones that drove. That, I mean, that's one of the main issues that drove the mob to be formed in Missouri. Right. It's because, in fact, it was so it was so problematic that that uh, Phelps wrote an extra to retract what he said the next day, the following day, when he got, when he got word that uh, that the uh, Missourians had formed a uh, uh, were conspiring to basically expel him. Uh, so the secret manifesto went around. Uh, which called on Missourians who were against Mormons to um, basically take action against Mormons for this particular article. So Phelps responded by this extra, which was too late by then. But a lot of people didn't understand, don't understand that 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 is central to the history of Mormonism is the experience of blacks. And also, there's some schizophrenia with Mormons uh, as well. If you look at the look at the roots of Mormonism, Mormonism started in the in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. I mean, New York, Palmyra region. So you've got you've got primarily an abolitionist spirit, even in that even during Joseph Smith's time. Sure. So you've got a lot of Mormons who are from the from the Northeast and from the the Midwest who have very strong abolitionist leanings, and so the church was always being constructed in the 18, late eighteen mid eighteen hundreds to late eighteen hundreds as an abolitionist uh, movement, and that and and of course that is a um, that's a um, an adjective that you know Joseph Smith and others denied, you know vehemently denied. But yet, you again, you see some schizophrenia mm-hmm. in the way in which the prophet even uh, dealt with the issue. On the one hand, the prophet was known to be very, 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 very sympathetic towards black folks. On the other hand, believed in the mythology the blacks were were um, uh, were cursed. Not because of any revelation per se, but just no. because that was the no, prevailing just, Christian. It, it was a prevailing notion, and that people need to understand this. But these ideas are not are not just Mormon. you know they just, they just just didn't spring up from Mormonism. Mormonism has its own particular way of looking at it, uh, i.e., the curse of Cain metaphor, but the curse of Ham uh, uh, myth that 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 wherein wherein Ham saw his father Noah's nakedness, and that's that's the prevailing sort of Judeo Christian belief um, uh, was not only incorporated by Mormonism, but went one step further with with the whole invocation of Cain. Uh, as being cursed with dark skin for murdering his brother Abel and so on, mm-hmm. and that's, that's that particular curse is that particular idea is a unique to Mormonism. Right. Okay. So how did we get from being, you know, you know, Joseph Smith? I mean, I, there's a wonderful story that I think is in the new Joseph Smith film at church headquarters, where Joseph even went as far as to, you know, give a a man. I think a black man was caught stealing. Do you know the story? Right. Yeah, to tell, tell that tell that story. Well, there was there was a there was a this was reported in, I think in the Women's Journal or in the Women's Journal, and, uh, and apparently there was a uh, a slave who had ran away and uh, into a free state, and he was trying to get money to buy his buy his family's freedom, and um, and uh, had a horse, and uh, the prophet um, knew he was breaking the law, 
um, if you want to call that breaking the law. Nevertheless, you know, for the story's sake, um, the prophet bought, uh, purchased his horse from from him and told him to go go and buy go go back and and uh, claim his family. Hmm. And so that's that's the uh, and this is and this is this is not hearsay, by the way, people. I want to want your want your listeners to understand it. This is all documented in church history. I mean, right. This is not like we're, I'm making this up. This is all documented. And I think that particular um, story can be found in uh, uh, an old journal called the Women's Journal. That was, I guess, the Relief Society. The Relief Society back then was actually had notes and kept notes right. and wrote and published things. And so you can find that reference. Or, there. or run down to Temple Square and watch the movie. If for those That's of you right. who are close to Salt Lake. So how do oh, we? Yeah, oh, oh, okay. I mean, does that particular? Uh, uh, um, uh, story play there? Yeah, that's what I've been told. That the new Joseph yeah, Smith movie. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, it, it, because it, because John, because what I think that it does is it actually complexifies Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, and and even out of the words of James Manning, James, Elijah, Abel, they had high regard for Joseph Smith. I mean, high regard for him. I mean, James Manning, James was considered you know one of one of Joseph Joseph's family members. I mean even in her own even in her own words. And this is a black woman. So there was a lot of a lot of respect and admiration for the prophet Joseph right. Smith. Most of that changed during Brigham Young's uh, administration. So yeah. So how do we get from sympathetic and abolitionist, um, you know, to even as I understand supporting slavery in Utah? I think I think if you were to say well who. Who instigated this? You'd have to look at Brigham Young. Because Brigham Young in 1852 or 1854, one of the two, I can't remember the dates, declared this in Fillmore, Utah. It used to be the capital of, capital of Utah was Fillmore. Declared it when he was speaking to a state, a state legislature. And, of course, back then, the separation of church and state was not even a question. But he said, and I'll paraphrase, if no one spake it before me, I'll say it now. Blacks cannot hold the priesthood. And he goes on to say why. He explains that blacks were cursed and and that they were less than less, and this, that, and the other. So he, he, he made himself the author of that, which, which, which demonstrates beautifully, to me, the confusion over it. I mean, if, if Brigham Young is going to say that if no one has spake it before me, I'll say it now, you know, that blacks can hold the priesthood, to me, is a little bit compelling in that the church at that time really didn't have a policy, really didn't have any kind of a, a written, expressed, uh, you know, dictum on what to, do, what to do with their black members, what to do with the black members of the church. So, but Brigham Young made himself the uh, the instigator of that. So, certainly Brigham Young. Um, also, when the Saints came west and settled in the Utah Basin, um, Brigham Young um, enacted what's called an act in relation in relationship to service, which it was a, basically a document that authorized African slavery and Native American slavery in the Utah territories. And one of the things that um, one of the things that the federal government was trying to do is contain slavery to the south, to the south. And so the Saints came out west, and they started slavery. The only territory west of Mississippi to have slavery, legalized slavery. Right. So we have a really, we have a really, really checkered past. And, uh, and, we, and we act like we, you know, we, we always want to act like, when I say we, because we're all complicit in it. Um, we want to, you know, excuse these these experiences and, and erase them, and and, and Pollyanna, uh, you know, our past, and not really deal with, you know, the things that vex, vex us even today as members of the church, and so rather than address the issues of race uh, and really confront these issues honestly and forthrightly, we like to pretend that they don't they don't exist or stonewall or create. Um, verbal uh, gymnastics to get around the issue, which continue, which continually makes Mormons look look suspect in the eyes of those who would otherwise who may may even consider the church as an option as a as a theological and religious option. So we really do shoot ourselves in the foot. One of the things that I, I told um, one high ranking member of the church one time about this issue is that um, not coming clean with the priesthood issue, not talking about the issue puts black people in a really bad situation because then blacks have to defend a racist policy. Right. Blacks blacks become this blacks become, you know, has have to bear the burdens of white racist sentiment. I mean it's just that simple. Right. Because right? whites get to walk away and say, well, you know, the church is you know, the church is still true and it we have this this has nothing to do with the church being true or or anybody being false prophets. 
It has to do with integrity. It has to do with the very thing, John, that the church teaches us as members of the church is to what? Reconcile. Right? Right. Ask for forgiveness. Atone for our past. Right? To go do no more. We teach that on any given Sunday. On, on any given week during family home, we're teaching our families the importance of forgiveness, the importance of atonement. Right? And then we refuse to atone. Well, I mean, uh, that's, a bad, I mean that's a bad example. I think it's an awful example. So let's consider that a, a preview for how I'm hoping to sort of culminate, which is your final thoughts. Right. Um, let's jump. So I, I, I hope to do another podcast later, kind of going in depth on the on the blacks and the, and the priesthood issue. But let's just let's do a quick summary and and sort of skip over. Oh, I don't know, a hundred, hundred and thirty years, you know. So you know, hundred, hundred and thirty years uh, from Brigham Young on, um, no priesthood for the blacks. Um, these theories about preexistence and about less than valiant sprung up. Um, not a whole lot of black people were joining the church. Um, and we won't even go into the, the Brazil issue and the temple and Spencer B. Kimball or the David O. McKay stuff, which I've talked about in previous podcasts. But, you know, at some point, um, you know, the church did in 1978 allow um, blacks um, to have full membership and to uh, hold the priesthood. I, I think it's for also important to note that that there were statements by, by apostles and prophets that blacks would never hold the priesthood in in this mortal existence is that right that's correct yes. okay so so they definitely um you know had made that claim but then the revelation came and it's probably fair um to mention the one bruce armor quote that was not given to the general body of the church but that was given um to some ces instructors do you have that or you know i i can yeah of, I, I do i have mcconkey's statements yes i could par- i can I'm paraphrase it um, well, McConkey talks about McConkey is invoked when he talks about. If you look at, look at Mormon doctrine, he talks about the Negroes, and he talks about Negroes were. Um, I've got the quote here, but uh, but uh, but basically the fact that Negroes were were of the lineage of Ham, right. and yeah. that Ham and that and that lineage had no part, uh, were not partakers of the priesthood. Uh, more or less is what is what that says, and he lists. He goes on to list what what that prohibition means. Basically, that missionaries um, I mean, we, we we can proselytize amongst them, but not act, not act actively proselytize. If we happen to come across somebody of color, African American, and it's okay to mention the gospel, but we don't actively seek seek them out. Is one of the things that it says uh, in, in his in his uh, text. Um, yeah, that was interesting. I, I actually, it says, it says, and this, this is what, as a result of his rebellion, Cain was cur- cursed with a dark skin. Now, I want to just tell your listeners, and this is this is uh, this is the uh, 1975 printing of Mormon doctrine, and there's, of course, it's gone through many revisions, but but this is one of the this is one of the ones that, in fact, this 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 literature, this lingo is still found in Mormon doctrine today. I mean, there is, a, there is a disclaimer, and I'll read that for your listeners if it's, if it's okay. But it says here, as a result of uh, as, as, as a result of his rebellion, Cain was cursed with a dark skin. Now we don't have any idea what kind of curse cursing Cain had. The scriptures doesn't the scriptures aren't, aren't clear on that. They just aren't clear. We don't have any clue. But I can assure you that it wasn't black folks. It may have even been white folks. It could have been y'all yeah. that had a curse on y'all. You, right. know, have you ever thought about that? Sure. Yeah. But nevertheless, um, he says, he became the father of Negroes, and those spirits who are not worthy to receive the priesthood are born through this lineage. He became the first mortal to be cursed as a son of perdition. That's what it says yeah. uh, in that particular um, edition. In ni- the 1978 edition is almost verbatim yeah. uh, with a couple of changes. Now, here is, here is the... Um, let me see. There is a uh, um, here's a here's a, a disclaimer that came out uh, in '78. It says Mormon doctrine has for decades been a classic work on certain. Okay, okay I'm going to back up. This is how the church responded to these kinds of uh, you know I don't know what else to call them, John, but racist. Right. I mean racist because they're invoking because race is the central controlling metaphor. Right. For common sense making, right? So I'm I'm using phenotype, people's differences, as a basis to understand and interpret reality. So it's racist, right? And right. usually, 
racism is about power. Who has power to control? Who has power to deny, right? Whites have always had that kind of power. Blacks have not had that kind of power in the U.S. Now, you people, I know some of your listeners might say, well, look, and white folks are, are, are typical of this kind of thing. In fact, I would even encourage your listeners to, to listen to, to watch FX, Black and White, that show that, that Ice, Ice Cube did on FX mm-hmm. about the black family that's turned white and the white family's turned black and how they experience the world. It's absolutely fascinating, hmm. fascinating uh, to see how the white family responds to being associated and being around, because they've never had to. Right. And all of a sudden they're put in a situation where they have, they've, got to, they've got to understand black folks, whereas the black family who's white are much more comfortable being around white people, because you know why? They've had to be, they, they have been the recipients of, of the white power structure since they, since they were knee-high. Right. But, but anyway, um, what this says is that um, uh, Mormon doctrine has for decades been a classic work on certain beliefs and practices unique to the LDS, to the, to the Latter-day Saints, period. A reflection of the times and culture in which it was written. Mm. Okay? This monumental work has added to the understanding of countless members of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. So basically, you know, a reflection of time. So basically, understand that when this was written, you know, uh, Elder McConkie had some racism. Right. Right? He had some problems that he was invoking these assumptions about black people. But it's okay. It was just a reflection of the times. Now, how is that supposed to make black people feel? Right? I mean, how you, I mean where do white folks get off, right, chiding black people for being pissed off when they read stuff like this, mm-hmm. right? Or when this kind of literature is pre- presented to prospective members of the church and they turn away. Or they hear these, these sorts of innuendos, these sorts of uh, folklorist notions about themselves as black people, and you're surprised they don't want to join the church. Or when this kind of stuff is raised in the media and the church refuses to respond to it. Or they say... You know, the 1978 priesthood revelation speaks for itself. It doesn't speak for itself. All it says is that all worthy male members can now hold the priesthood. It says nothing about the folklore that underscored it, nothing about the racism that's embodied within it. It says nothing about that. Right. And there's not even been an inkling of an apology. Okay. I mean, and so, so African-American members, let me finish this comment. Okay, no problem. African-American members of the church, John, are then hurt by this. They're psychologically hurt by it, because now they've got to bear the burdens for white racist sentiment. And then white people are also uh, affected by it, because now they get to walk away feeling inferior, feeling superior. Right. And it might be unconsciously inferior, or superior, excuse me. But these have, these, these, this particular notion, these ideas, have consequences on both sides. Right. Sorry. No, it's good. Go so this, Go is, this is very important.